namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. So tonight, uh, or this evening rather, uh, just to go over this business of technique, um, uh, you know, a a technique is there to uh, perfect something, isn't it? Um, If you think about musicians or sports people, you know, they they have their techniques. Uh, Was it the frisbee flop? Just came to mind there. The guy who started jumping over the bar with his back. Eh? Frosbury. Thanks. (laughs) Frisbee's one of those. (laughs) I knew it was close. Uh, Frosbury flop. Um, So there you see, uh, I mean, that's a good example, actually, when I think about it, because people are jumping over this bar and using the usual technique of sort of, you know, just jumping over it. (laughs) As, as you would as a kid, and this kid and this uh, Frosbury uh, finds a way of doing it by throwing his shoulders over first, doesn't he? The weight of his body, and then sort of he's almost doing a somersault, really. And uh, of course, the the records go absolutely berserk. So the aim is to jump over this bar, but the techniques are different. And if you get your technique right, then you get over the bar. So that's in a sense tells us the the relationship. Uh, between a technique and, and your objective. Uh, I'm also thinking of people like uh, there's a um, violin playing. I remember years ago, I think, Menuhin? Menu? Is that how I said that right? <laughs> Menuhin, uh, the violinist, he uh, retaught himself, I remember rightly, the violin under what was known as the Suzuki method. Do you know? Remember that? Something like that. And this uh, uh, this gave him just ex- you know that extra bit of uh, expression in his playing or whatever. I don't quite know what it did for him, but he found that by doing this other technique, he, you know, his violin playing improved. So there is something about you know the connection between the technique and what it is you're trying to achieve. And we can also say, in the negative side, that if the if the technique isn't right for what you're doing or isn't as perfected or, or uh, is leaving something out of the skills, then, um, then you tend not to, uh, then you tend to end up not as skillful as somebody else. Uh, another good example of that in sports is, um, you know, our great achievement in the last Olympics with 19 medals or something, wasn't it? And um, I think it was, a terrible thing for the Australians it's the first time we beat them I think <laughs> something like that. But the thing is that what I discovered was that we'd filched a lot of their trainers see <laughs> so now there's something else the person who is actually guiding the sportsman um, is, is also you know uh, important in terms of getting the technique across etc etc do you want to come up front mm. you're right are you? uh, just wave it you know. <laughs> um, 
So if you look back at just in the recent history of Theravada, uh, there are at least two major techniques that come to mind, uh, which would be the Mahasi, the Mahasi Sayadaw's technique, which he got from his earlier teacher, and uh, the one taught by uh, Goenkaji and uh, Mother Sayama, I think that's what they, how they referred to her, um, the Ubakin technique. Now these are probably the two most used in the West. And then on top of that, you might say there's the more easier, or not so much easier, less directed technique of, uh, in the forest, in the Thai forest tradition, of just observing the breath and whatever comes up. It's very Zen in a sense. You know, you just watch and you use the breath to um, get a certain level of concentration and whatever comes up, that's your object. You just watch it. In a sense, that's the basis of all technique. Uh, but the little techniques that were developed by these other teachers uh, just made the pointing just a bit more sharp, um, guided the meditation more to look more closely. So that's, uh, you might say, the importance of a, of a technique as such. It's, it's just a way of, uh, of practicing, a way of developing your skills of meditation. And uh, no matter how good the technique is, no matter how clever it is, it's of no use to the meditator if their actual aim isn't right. That's another thing too. It's no good learning the Suzuki technique on violin playing if you want to be a footballer. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't work. <laughs> or even a thief, fiddling. So, uh, we have to be very clear as to what what state, what um, state of consciousness or what state in general we're trying to develop through Vipassana. So that's very important. Um, <clears throat> and the first thing is to be clear as to what it's not. So if we know what it's not, then at least uh, we can be more clear as to what it is. So it's not about directly healing the body. There are many techniques these days to do with healing the body, going from something very physical like, um, you know, uh, osteopathy to something on the edge like homeopathy and, and then you get into all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and when you get into that, when you go into that, the person has a clear aim in mind. You know, they've got a physical problem and they, they want, they're, looking for, they're looking for help. Now, we hear about physical um, problems being cured by Vipassana. I mean, they are, definitely. Headaches go, uh, backaches go. Uh, there's that um, amazing example from the, from the book, from the Mahasi Center when he was alive, which is a compendium of all these cures that took place. It's on the, it's on the web. And the, perhaps the most astounding one is this man who comes in with stomach cancer and he's dying of it. And uh, he decides to take no medicine but just to sit in Vipassana. And as he explains it, there's an explosion in, in his stomach and it's gone. Now, of course, that suggests that whatever the cancer was, it was uh, caused by the mental state. It, wasn't, it obviously wasn't something like asbestosis or something, or something that you can actually point to a chemical or a substance which is 
mess the body about. And uh, one of the things that we come to realize in our meditation is that a mental state has a direct impact on the body. We can feel it. You, you know, if anger comes up, you can feel the heat in the body. It's messing, it's messing your cellular life about. Fear comes up. It, you know, it's all, con- it's all constricting and tight, and, and you get these funny nausea feelings and stuff like that. So it's not as though <clears throat> uh, the mind um, the mind isn't affecting the body. We know that psychosomatic diseases. And when you hear about uh, vipassana insight meditation curing diseases when people say well you know I used to have these terrible migraines and they've all gone now through Vipassana then the meditator thinks well you know I've got this problem so I'm going to sit and it skews it skews the meditation because that's what you're looking for that's what you're trying to do you're trying to get rid of this headache this backache neckache noseache whatever (laughs) whatever's gone wrong trying to get rid of it see so all these techniques noting going slow up and down the body there's hundreds of them, uh, are then all skewed over to this aim to try and cure the body. See? Now, it may or may not, you know, hopefully it does, but you miss out on the whole point of Vipassana, which is uh, a spiritual insight, which is to do with uh, realizing, uh, you know, uh, ultimate truth, for want of a better phrase. And in the same way, we make the mistake about therapy, psychotherapy. So all of us have some uh, imbalance or other in our psyche. I mean, it's just, just the way we are because of our conditioning. And uh, we know now through mindfulness training and CBT and, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction and <laughs> that, in fact, you know, there's some connection between the development of Vipassana and uh, mental purity, heart purity. So therefore, the meditator then begins to meditate in order to get rid of their psychological diseases, their psychological stress. And hopefully it does, hopefully it does alleviate the problem, as we see with something like mindfulness, stress-based stuff. Um, But again, it sort of misses the point, it's skewed off, it's skewed off, you see. And uh, by doing that, again, we miss out on a deeper healing, which is you know the spiritual disease that we suffer from, and that um, that spiritual disease could be perhaps contained in the phrase "Who am I?" and that would be a or "What am I?" Sort of digging deep at a, at a deep sort of existential level, like what am I doing here? Who am I? You know, where am I going? Why am I here? That's even worse. And uh, I think a person might approach, might have that approach, especially, you know, uh, Westerners with our psychotherapeutic history, um, on the understanding, and to an extent it is true, that um, it is our psychological problems which are distorting the way we see. But the Buddha, the Buddha's technique, the Buddha's, way of teaching is actually to leave all that to the side and to move to an angle, to move to a position where that still is within the purview of our investigation, but it doesn't become the purpose. And we, we wouldn't do that unless we become more and more uh, 
um, confident, have faith in the system that these mental turbulences, the turbulences that we call you know, emotional uh, stuff, um, actually we don't have to do anything for them to heal themselves. And that's a big leap for us because all our therapies offer us techniques about doing something about them. And a lot of them are successful. I mean, there's nothing, nothing absolutely, there's nothing particularly harmful about them, far from it. So they're very clever techniques. They're very, you know, good ways in which um, therapists can help people overcome certain mental problems they've got. But the uh, understanding, you see, is that when you depersonalize, this is the point, when you depersonalize these mental diseases, they cure themselves. What do we mean by depersonalizing it? It means taking the I out. And that's one of your main techniques, you see. You're actually objectifying something, you're looking at it. Whereas before, we say, we might go to a therapist and say, I, you know, I'm always depressed and I'm getting manic and I'm up and down. And, and they say, it's, it's I, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. And so the, ther- the therapist gives techniques which may alleviate the problem, but it doesn't get rid of the I, because it's the I that's creating the problem in the first place. When we take the I out, the me out, and we begin to see these mental diseases objectively, then we find certain characteristics about them that in fact um, by depersonalizing them they lose their power over us. Now you experience that in meditation when something, a memory comes up or something and you feel there's a bit of anger or a bit of depression or even a bit of excitement and joy occasionally, who knows. One, as it were, looks at it as an object and there's that disconnection with it not a disconnection in the sense of not feeling it, not knowing it, but a disconnection whereby you're observing something very objectively. As you would watching that chicken that comes around here. He's not been around, actually. He's because I frightened him. <laughs> I frightened her. I barked, and she ran out, squawking. And that was... <laughs> I'm very good with animals. There are two ducks as well. <laughs> they haven't come back either so um, it's like we're taking a position in ourselves where we can observe ourselves and that position of observation is not an abstract thing it's not an intellectual thing it's a direct experience of what it is that we're actually feeling See, so when pain comes up it's not as though we are, by pulling, by pulling out the eye, by, by no longer saying, my knee is hurting. I am suffering pain in my knee. By pulling that I and me and mine out, and your noting is pain, there's pain. See, there, see, an object. Paradoxically, we can actually feel it the keener. Because when the eye steps in, you get that resistance not wanting to be there, fear of it. See? Okay? 
So when an emotion comes up in a similar way, depression comes up. So our, our interior dialogue would normally be, I am depressed and I am fed up with this depression. There'd be some sort of uh, identity with the depression. And then in a sort of peculiar way that human beings do, uh, they find another identity which hates the depression. Right? I'm fed up with the depression now. So I am depressed and I'm fed up with, <laughs> with being depressed. <laughs> and this sort of uh, catastrophic way that we keep growing and growing around a central problem by resisting it and then resisting the resistance of it. So you get the depression and you get fed up with it and then you get angry with it and then you get so angry you're afraid of it and then you get so afraid you really get depressed about how afraid you are and the whole thing sort of churns into this into this you know uh, whirlpool of disaster and uh, what we're trying to do is to take the I out of that to take the me out of that take the mine me my right and in so doing it loses that personhood loses the personhood now when we do that what do we find we find that it begins to diminish right begins to diminish sometimes it'll diminish almost immediately sometimes as soon as you pull out the thing begins to fade away sometimes it hangs on a bit longer it might hang on a day it might hang on a month who knows but it always dies away and when it dies away, when we're in that position and it dies away, we realize, actually, I didn't do anything. It itself lost energy. It itself began to undo itself, exhaust itself. And then there comes this sort of feeling that what I'm doing with the heart is allowing it to express itself. I'm sort of liberating, for want of a better word, these pent-up states that are within the psyche, within the mind. And our problem is, as meditators, is how to keep maintaining that position of the objective observer, the objective feeler. Yeah? Often in the literature around Vipassana, you get this accent on observing, seeing. And in a sense, uh, that only gives us half of the equation. The other half is feeling. The other half is, is bearing with in that very patient way, just allowing things to arise and feeling them, you see. And I suppose that's the big paradox, that these emotional states, this is not true of physical states, because the body has its own laws and its own, its own separate existence from the mind. But it would seem that the mind cannot express, cannot liberate itself of these burdens, save into some form of consciousness. So either you feel your emotional um, distress as an emotion or you feel it in the body as a discomfort or as a pain at worst as an illness see it has to that if you, if you think of it as turbulence that's that's the way I think about these things it's just turbulence like like the weather it's a turb turbulence now, somehow We've caged it in. We've, we're, we're holding it through resistance, through fear and through aversion. And we normally express that by simply not looking. 
And that's basically what you know Freud discovered through this uh, through repression. I mean, it's a brilliant discovery, remarkable discovery. It was completely unknown, as far as I understand, in the West. The whole mechanism of how human beings, in ignoring something, actually push something away. So, whatever techniques we employ, it is the, the whole purpose of them is to get, to get us into that position of the objective feeler, the objective uh, observer. That's all it is. And um, one of the, the main techniques that the Mahasi developed was this business of noting. Now, the reason for the noting is not just simply to point us to the object, to keep the attention on the object. I mean, it does that very well if you do it consciously. Right? That's the first thing. If you get into the habit of noting, the rising and falling, rising and falling, that also becomes conditioned in the mind. Right? And uh, our experience is that, you know, we're off in Acapulco somewhere. And when we come back, the mind's happily going, living, falling, rising, falling. <laughs> like we've taught it to do that. In which case, of course, it's absolutely useless. There's some, uh, there's some connection. There is a connection between the intellect the words, the concepts, and the intelligence, this intuitive intelligence which is observing. We confuse this intuitive intelligence with the intellect. But the intuitive intelligence is using the intellect to talk to itself, to tell itself what it knows. Otherwise you wouldn't know it. It's a, a paradox, one of these things. But our confusion is that this intelligence is the intellect. And therefore, the cleverer a person is, the more, in, the more intelligent, the more intuitive intelligence you think they have. But that's not necessarily so. And that's the separation between cleverness and wisdom. Hmm? Not necessarily so. So, what the, that's the first purpose, is to use the intellect as something which keeps pointing the attention at the object. See? Keeps pointing it there. And if you get into the habit of it, it's quite remarkable. It takes a time, it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes continual effort. Um, the noting comes quite easy. And one of the reasons why the noting comes quite easy is because in a retreat of this nature or Mahasi retreat, in fact all retreats, there's an awesome amount of repetition during the day. So you get up and hearing, hearing, right? Goes the bell. That's, that's the <laughs> Every morning you wake up, hearing, hearing, is it? So after three or four or five days, you wake up and hearing, hearing. It becomes quite natural. Yeah? And then, you know, brushing your teeth, brushing, brushing. So eventually you find that your day doesn't give you a choice. I mean, that's what a good meditation retreat ought to do. It shouldn't give you a choice. You shouldn't be saying, shall I sit or shall I not sit? Or I think I'll do some walking now. No, I might go for a walk. No, See, <laughs> all that is taken away from uh, the meditator uh, because it becomes a distraction. You know, like you're fed up and you think, well, I don't think I'll sit now. I'll have a cup of tea. See? <laughs> Whereas actually you're supposed to be sitting watching this fed-upness. 
So, uh, the noting, because of the repetitious nature of a retreat, becomes quite, quite easy and normal, becomes quite straightforward. And the noting can be both as to what it is you are um, experiencing. So if it's pain, you're saying pain, pain, right? But it can also be the process that you're actually experiencing. So hearing, you see, uh, might be just hearing where you're observing just what's happening within the mind, within the heart, and at the eardrum, this sound. You're interested in the process of hearing. And um, a word obviously cannot contain the whole of that experience because there's a part of you which is hearing, like this little, little blackbird. And there's a part of you which is, into, you know, uh, giving you pictures of the bird and where it might be and etc, etc. And there's a part of you which is responding, a sense of joy, you know, bird song. So there's lots of things going on there and what we don't want to do is start thinking about it because then we lose the direct experience. So the word like hearing, as it were, contains the thinking mind, holds it there in a sort of uh, limbo. It can't think, right? It's not producing a train of thought. But it's actually acting as a push behind the observing to make you actually look. And that's the purpose of the, of the, of the noting in terms of vipassana. Um, in terms of the intellect itself and why we need to shut it down is because everything that we experience is always being filtered through our past experience. It's always <coughs> being distorted by what we've experienced of this thing in the past. When something comes along that we've never experienced before, then you get what these pictures in the room tell us, you see, especially that little girl, you see. Now there's no, you know, she's so enthralled in looking at that butterfly and reaching out to it that she's no words for it, she's no concept about it, this is something very new, and therefore the thinking mind has stopped. There's just the, the that gaping mouth, you know, the, the jaw drops, you know, and you look a bit gormless. But actually, that's when you're intuitive intelligence is at its most lively yeah when I mentioned this I was at um, a monastery up in the Algoy Alps would you believe it's one of I, it's the forest monastery set up by Ayakema lovely beautiful place um, unfortunately the well I say unfortunately the, the teaching is all in German so unless <laughs> you can speak German the, the, the monk there he speaks very good English the actual Nyana uh, Bodhi he speaks English and the other two monks with him, Kasapa, oh, I've forgotten the other's name now, um, they're also excellent English speakers, so you could stay there. Um, oh, what was I going to say that? What was I saying that for now? Where was I? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's eh? uh, the jaw dropping. That's right. When I said that in this talk, uh, a woman came up to me afterwards and said that her father would say to her, to close her mouth or a bee would fly in. <laughs> and that's what we do with children. We don't see that. In fact, they're actually really alive and taking stuff in. But outwardly, of course, you look gormless. And if an adult does it, then, then you think they've got learning difficulties, isn't it? 
<laughs> but actually, that's the sign of the of the complete newness of an experience, complete openness to it. So when we have an experience and the intellect comes into it, by, by intellect I mean images, thoughts, uh, concepts, ideas that we've gained from past experience, it always distorts the immediate experience because we're looking at it from that history. So just take a very simple example, you see, fruit, you see. Remember, every time you taste, every time you eat an apple, you're not just eating that apple, you're eating all the apples you've ever eaten. Because all the apples you've ever eaten have congregated into this idea of an apple. And when you taste that apple, it's either good or bad, or it's not sweet enough, it's not firm enough. And all those are comparisons. The apple itself is just an apple, you know, and it has its own characteristics. And it may be soft or hard, sweet or sour, but that apple is unique in itself. But we don't see it like that. We see it as part of apple, big apple. With a capital A, apple, and we've got this line which says these are good apples and these are bad apples, <laughs> and this fits somewhere here. And don't buy them again. So all the time, all the time we're doing that, all the time we're doing that. It's very, very difficult for us to establish this open-mindedness, this real, uh, unadulterated uh, observation. And that's one of the reasons to develop this abiding in the present moment, because that's exactly what it's developing. You see, exactly the qualities of open-mindedness, open-heartedness, equanimity. To me, that's the, the root um, uh, virtue of equanimity, that it 